This is an ABC podcast. Sam Vincent is back on Conversations today. Sam came on the program way back in 2014 after he'd written a book about the whaling industry wars. Since then, Sam the journo has embraced a radical change. He's taken over the family farm, a property that lies just outside Canberra. Sam's parents had been running the farm for years, and he discovered that they'd been practising a style of regenerative farming that was unconventional for their time. It was a method that helped slowly repair the scars inflicted on the land over the previous century of farming. And his parents had shunned the use of synthetic fertilisers, and in the end they'd made the farm more profitable. Sam was called to the farm after his dad had suffered an accident. But although Sam had grown up there, he knew almost nothing about farming. And so Sam, the millennial inner-city journo, became a farmhand under his father, learning to hammer in fence posts, tie up wire fences, how to castrate a calf, and move a herd of cows around a paddock. And all the while, Sam was slowly learning to read the land. He started a fig orchard and a family of his own. And he also joined forces with local indigenous elders to protect a special site that lay within the property. Sam's now written a book that follows his journey on and into the land and shows us how in farming, in many ways, everything old is new again. And taking a leaf from Lawrence Durrell, his book is titled My Father and Other Animals. Hi, Sam. Hi, Richard. This all starts with a phone call you got from your mum. Tell me about that call and what you were told. So it was back in 2014, actually, I think a few weeks before that book on whaling came out and I was at home in Canberra and my mum called me and said that my dad was in the ambulance, he'd had an accident, he'd stuck his hand in the wood chipper, but not to worry, it wasn't like that scene in Fargo (laughs) or anything. So for a split second there, I was picturing my dad without a hand and that he'd have to tie his shoelaces with a kind of pirate hook from now on, but thankfully he didn't lose his hand. What had happened is the uh, the mulcher had jammed. He was making compost, and the first step of that is, is mulching tree branches. And rather than turn off the machine like a normal person, he decided to try and unjam it by sticking a metal bar into the chute of the wood chipper. It flicked back and broke his thumb in three places. But this was just the latest in a long list of accidents. When I was in kindergarten, he chopped off most of his left big toe with a chainsaw and then drove himself to hospital without telling anyone. He'd broken wrists and ribs by basically throwing himself into the action without much much thought for the consequences. <laughs> So when you got this call, what were you doing with your life? I mentioned you were working as a journalist and a writer and you'd written this book on whaling. What was your life like in Canberra at that point? Yeah, and I was also working as a research assistant for a politics professor at ANU. I guess my my life was good. I was kind of floating along a little bit. I, I feel like... Millennial malaise is a little bit overblown at the moment, but I was, I was definitely feeling that if perhaps I'd, I'd come of age in another decade, I'd have a good job as a journalist. I might be a staff writer at a magazine or a newspaper. Um, so I was freelancing, but not really getting a heap published and not making much money. Not that that was that important to me. I, I just was a bit directionless, I guess, looking back on it. I, I, I didn't, didn't think it at the time, but I definitely was. And I wondered where I would, where I would be in five, ten years' time with my writing. And so when my dad had the accident, I decided to visit my parents the next day. I have three older sisters. They all lived interstate. I was close to the farm in Canberra. And I drove out there just to see how he was going. And it it kind of turned into a bit of a a crisis meeting, an intervention about what to do with my dad. He was then 68 years old. I think the average age of a farmer in Australia is late 50s, so he was even old by those standards. And it it was decided almost by accident that I would start working with him on the farm. This wasn't an apprenticeship yet. I wasn't deemed his successor. It was really just a way for me to help him out to, and from my perspective to keep him 
from harm's way. I, I didn't want my mum to have to make another harder phone call if he did even something even more extreme. So I started coming out to the farm one day and then two days a week and doing whatever he wanted me to do. So it wasn't really like intended as an apprenticeship to begin with. It was more like, Dad, is it really wise to put the metal pole into the working woodchopper, that kind of thing? Really. Yeah, exactly. Looking back, it was it was very subtle, this shift. It, it, it became, with time, more of a formal apprenticeship. But at that stage, not really. I was still working part-time at ANU. I was still, still writing my freelance journalism. But I, I was very time-rich then, and, and I thought, why not? I'll, I'll come out and, and work with him. I, I felt like I didn't know my dad that well at that stage. Um, he's pretty typical of his generation. He's, he's a laconic, no-nonsense kind of guy. And, and this was a nice opportunity for me to spend some, some time with him one-on-one, -on -one, which we hadn't really ever. So the farm's just outside the ACT, just across the border into New South Wales just north of Canberra, just from what I gather, it's just a bit west of Lake George. What, what's the country like there? How would you describe it? It's quite a small farm by Australian standards. It's 650 acres. It's, it's long and skinny. So I always tell people to picture Central Park in New York, which I think is 800, 850 acres. It's long and skinny. So roughly that size, a bit smaller. Um, but even though it's small, it covers a lot of different terrain. There's, it's the western edge of the Yass Valley. So uh, it's eastern part of the farm. It's, it's low-lying. It's prone to flooding. It can be quite lush. And then it goes up into the hills and can be quite rocky. There's, there's dense bushland. And then over those hills, there's another little floodplain and a creek, the Murrumbateman Creek, runs through that part of the farm. So it's small but quite diverse in, in its topography and its geography. You say that Australian farms, Australian properties, are often measured in Belgiums, as in like some farm somewhere in northwest Australia might be four or five Belgiums in size. <laughs> how, how many Belgiums is your farm? Uh, it's, it's a couple of Vatican cities, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, it's not bigger than Belgium. <laughs> So when did your folks buy this farm and, and what was the reason that they bought it for? They bought it in 1983, which is the year before I was born. Initially, it was a hobby. My dad had gotten a job in Canberra, but I think he always wanted to be a farmer. He was a, an economist, an agricultural economist in Canberra, but both he and my mum had studied ag science at uni. That's how they met. And my mum was from, from a large uh, cattle farm in Western Victoria. So they always pined for a life on the land. But for the next few decades, it was something that my dad did on weekends and before going to work. He has an incredible work ethic and some of my early memories of him, earliest memories are of him checking the sheep. We then che had sheep in his uh, bright orange coveralls that he'd strip off and there'd be a suit underneath and then he'd drive his, his battered ute to work and he'd be at it again when he got home from work. He once shot a fox in the living room when he got home from, from work that had strayed in. Um, so I think those early years, it was a hobby. Uh, he was serious about learning and applying what he, he and my mum had learnt at uni. Eventually they kind of disregard a lot of the conventional things they'd learnt, but, but at that stage it, it wasn't a full-time gig. But then when he retired from his city job around 2003, he really thrust himself into full-time farming. You see, they both came from farming families, and particularly on your mum's side, your, gra your maternal grandfather had been in that kind of Western Districts grazier, Malcolm Fraser-type part of the world of Victoria. What was the kind of philosophy that they'd grown up with in those early post-war years when it came to farming? When they were at the University of Melbourne, the Green Revolution was all the rage. This idea that we could feed the world by uh, using synthetic fertiliser, pesticides, by manipulating grains to produce high-yield varietals. And that's since gone out of favour because of its um, detrimental environmental impacts. The encouragement of monocultures and, and of these chemicals has has while it has fed a lot of people, it has, has created a whole litany of other problems. So at the time, I think my parents were quite conventional, but early on, they started disregarding this. They, they stopped using fertilizers and, and made their own solutions by composting or by using manure. And my dad, right from the beginning, actually, he planted thousands and thousands of these trees called tagasasti or tree lucerne, which are nitrogen fixers. They're from the Canary Islands. And 
And I've, I've never seen anyone in our district plant these trees to the degree that he has. And, and several decades on, these rocky hillsides that I've seen in photos from the early 80s are now extremely lush because of these trees. He had the foresight to plant when a lot of his neighbours weren't doing things like that. You said they were brewing something called compost tea. As a city person, I have no idea what that is. What is compost tea? It's quite mystical. So <laughs> he, he loves composting and it's, it's a fun thing to do with him. Uh, when city people compost, they might think of getting rid of uh, their food scraps for their garden. At our farm, Golion, the food scraps go to the chooks or the worms. So composting is its own thing. We seek out specific materials to compost. We we use these tagasasti branches that I earlier mentioned, chip them with wattle branches. They naturally contain the, uh, the right ratio of carbon to nitrogen to make good compost. Then he adds all kinds of other things which he calls accelerators, seaweed, nettles, borage, comfrey, dead animals was really alive. all that yeah. stuff wow yeah that's his that's his philosophy anything that was once alive can um can create new life so once we've composted all this and it's a big heap we spread it around orchards but it can also make uh, compost tea and he does this by getting a bit of the compost and then putting it in a big tub of water that he's aerating overnight and that uh, encourages the microbes in the compost to come out and become active in this water. So eventually you have, have this big tank of activated microbial compost water or compost tea. And he also puts in things like fish hydrolysate, essentially crushed up dead fish, so that if the microbes aren't working, at least you're throwing this good stuff, this dead fish mix onto your pastures. And uh, every autumn he used to drive his ute around. He'd, he'd modified it so on the back there was a big boom sprayer and he'd spray this rather foul-smelling, gloopy, yeah. I was going to say, Sam, like that sort of stuff, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd notice it. It'd, be, it'd make the air a bit piquant, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it, it seems to work. You can, mm. He used to say that you could see the, uh, the point where the hills became too steep for him to keep driving um, and spraying the compost tea, and that's when it would... Would get, it would get browner earlier in the summer than, than the, the, the slopes lower down where he'd been spraying the compost tea. You say that he's, he loves grabbing seaweed whenever he, whenever he could to feed the cows. Cows eat seaweed? Cows love seaweed. I was on King Island in Tasmania a few years ago and I watched cattle come in from paddocks onto the beach and, and eat seaweed. They, cows eat a whole range of things. I think we've been conditioned to believe that they only eat grass or in industrial farming grain, but they're, they're more like giraffes. They're browsers. They love eating different leaves and, and seaweed is definitely something they, they enjoy as well. Had you grown up on that farm? I had grown up on the farm, but I didn't learn anything. I, I was a bit dreamy kid. I spent a lot of time by myself walking around in the paddocks, but I, I didn't show much interest in the animals or even how the the pastures were working, how it was all connected. I preferred building little cubby houses and make-believe worlds. Um, I'm sure when I was really little, my dad probably asked me to help out and I probably told him to that I wanted to watch TV and he gave up. And you see, Sam, my dad was a handyman, but I'm not. Because any time he'd sort of conscript me to help him, for, he'd go, oh, just give it to me. Let me yeah. do it. Was your dad like that when it came to farming? He still is like that. <laughs> he just came to visit yesterday and he was grumbling that the lawns hadn't been mowed and hadn't split enough wood. And it was, <laughs> He arrived at sundown and we said, what can I do? Let's start doing work. So... Yeah, he's still much handier than me. Um, yeah, he's, he's always been very self-reliant. I think that is that is a correct point. He's just totally self-reliant and it, it did make it hard to, to transfer that knowledge when the time came for me to start working with him. You said you were feeling a bit directionless at the time when you got the phone call. Uh, nonetheless, that's a big decision to take in some ways, being ready to become a farmhand for your dad. Why did you think you were ready to do that? Yeah, again, at the time, it didn't seem like that. It just seemed like I had a lot of time in my hands. We'd had this this mini crisis, and I think it's typical with Australian farming families that they don't really plan for succession. It takes a, uh, an accident to prompt a discussion about succession. So at that stage, I just thought, why not? I'll just give it a go. And, and I came to really enjoy it, not just the bonding with dad, chatting about his life on the farm, but, but also the skills we learnt and, and his 
rather unorthodox way of farming. I, I didn't realise he was a regenerative farmer until I started working with him. Yeah, how Nor- did you discover that? How did you discover that's what he'd been doing? I, I started keeping notes. I've still got this stack of notebooks. I just wrote farm notes and they were because I was starting with no knowledge at all. They were just to guide me along. And they, they turned out to be such entertaining little notes about what an eccentric man and farmer he was. They, they turned into this book, really. So an example is um, when we discussed the weather and whether it was going to rain, he'd say, let's see what the ants are doing. And I'd say, what do you mean? And he'd flip open a rock and see how chaotic the ants were rushing about. And that was his guide to see how how weather patterns were forming, what things do, like what, that. What, what, what do ants do when it's about to rain? Well, they always look crazy to me when you flip over a rock, but apparently they're extremely crazy when rain is, uh, is imminent because they're rushing around to get enough food underground before, before they're potentially flooded. You said that when you were working with him in these early years particularly, there were a few barbed remarks he would sort of send your way about what he might have thought about what you'd been doing with your life and you suspected that he thought you were an underachiever. Tell me a bit about how different his generational perspective was. Yeah, I guess by the the age that I started working with him on the farm, he had already been married for several years. He had established a family. He had bought a farm. He was in the midst of a successful economics career. And what was I doing? I was living in a share house. I was perennially single. I was floating along. Um, really wanted to be a writer, which was a world he didn't quite understand. When my first book came out, he he eventually read it and said that it was it was pretty good. I should submit it for a PhD. When <laughs> he didn't realise it was available in bookshops, so there was this this disconnect there. And I think he's a smart guy, and and I I assumed that he would be plugged into things like the housing market and how it's so far out of reach for a lot of younger people uh, or the fact that he had a free education and most young people are still paying off their hex debts. Um, But I think he spent so much time in the back paddock by himself that this stuff just didn't seem to seep in. I think he thought, he assumed that everyone else my age was, in his words, getting ahead, but I was stuck in the mud floating behind. But yeah, I, I think he... He just, he didn't understand that things had changed um, generationally. I remember in one of our paddock chats, I proposed to him that baby boomers in the West, and it is a, a Western thing after all, this, this generation, I proposed that they were the luckiest generation in human history. And I think he, he thought I was a bit crazy even putting that to him. Sometimes, though, your father seems like he'd been living in the future from you. You sort of said to him that you were, at the outset, you were in favour of promoting sustainability in agriculture, and he said that was old school thinking. Tell me about that and what he had to say about that. Yeah, it was really revolutionary for me to hear him say that. I assumed that what he practised and what he believed in was sustainability, and he he pointed out that sustainability is is just not doing any worse. So if you inherit a a farm that's been degraded through years of poor management and you manage to, say, keep the same amount of animals or produce the same crop yields, but you're not improving the land, then that is still sustainable. But he encouraged me to take it further. He said that sustainability is old thinking. Essentially, it's treading water. They were the words he used. And he, he pointed out that regenerative agriculture is actually trying to heal these wounds of the past that in Australian agriculture are so myriad, whether through overgrazing or losing carbon through too much ploughing, not understanding how these soils and grasslands work. Uh, so that was really his, his quest. He started slowly. As I said, he was conventional at the very beginning when he was a hobby farmer. But, but I think when he, he retired from the city in about 2003, that's when he really took on board this new way of thinking, regenerative agriculture, which is, is, is gaining more and more mainstream credibility. But at the time when he started it, it definitely wasn't. And he's, I think his neighbours thought he was a bit, bit crazy. Your dad's an economist. And you started to see this in banking terms, this whole idea of regenerative farming and sustainability. Tell me how that works. Yeah, I mean, you're not really building capital if you are drawing the same amount year on year, which is a sustainable model uh, through 
but through improving the soil, whether through biodiversity or water retention, increased ground cover, then you're, you're, you're building your capital. Your capital is the, the worms, the biodiversity, the ability to hold as much of a summer thunderstorm as possible and not see the water and the topsoil wash away. You say that he told you that you always want to aim for 100% green grass all the time. You don't get that, of course, but that's what you should aim for. What's the philosophy behind that? Yeah, it's pretty optimistic. By about November, where I live, all the country's brown, golden. The idea is that if you think about mowing the lawn in springtime when the, the grass is growing fast, you have to mow it regularly, and that prompts the grass to grow more, and it kind of stays green. It's always in this this flush of growth. And we use cattle in a similar way. So rather than be in one big paddock at once, they're moved through several small paddocks throughout the year. And how long they are kept in each paddock along the way is determined by the rate of growth. So I remember him in the paddock once drawing a curve with his arm. He showed me how in wintertime on the southern tablelands in New South Wales where we farm, there's not much going on. There's a tiny bit of growth, but it's so cold, things aren't really growing fast. And then the curve really takes off around September, mid-September into October. You have this flush of a couple of months. And that's when the grass is growing fast, so you should move the cattle fast. And then it'll start to die off inevitably November, December, when these perennial grasses, it's getting too hot for them to continue growing really fast. But in order to keep things moving, you match the rate at which you are moving your stock to the rate at which the grass is, is growing. And that'll keep things greener for longer. But also, as part of that philosophy is minimising the amount of bare ground you have. He told me early on that bare ground is the enemy. Why is it the enemy? Well, if you have bare ground, you're not making any money from feeding animals that you can sell. You're not cooling the climate. There's no grass there that's sequestering carbon. It's like a bit of concrete. The sun is beating down on it. It's going to be hotter. And then when it rains, the water's just going to hit that ground and rush off somewhere else. It's not going to soak in. So by having uh, green leafy plants over as much of the land as possible, you'll cool things down, you'll have more food for your animals, which will be more money eventually, and it'll keep the soil underneath really well aerated, and these deep burrowing roots will help the moisture that falls stay in the ground as long as possible. So that adds to this idea of 100% green, 100% of the time. So your new farming practice for cattle operates under what you call the law of the second bite. How does that work? It's quite hard to overgraze in winter and in summer when the growth rate is really slow. But in these shoulder seasons, in autumn and spring, when the rate of growth is fast, if a cow is in a paddock and eats one blade of grass, chomps it off. That blade of grass, before it has a chance to grow back a leaf that it can photosynthesize and get energy from the sun that way, it will rely on the energy it has stored in its roots. So if a second bite is made by a cow of that particular blade of grass before it has had the chance to recover its its leaf, then it will be under intense stress and it will wither and die and create bare ground. So for a long time, it was thought that overgrazing was simply a matter of having too many mouths to feed. But in the last few decades, regenerative farmers have come to believe that actually it's about time. The amount of time you have a cow or a mob of cattle in one paddock and the amount of time before you bring them back to that same paddock. So you have to allow the grass to fully recover its leaves before you can bring the mob back. And in springtime, that can be quite fast. So they're in a paddock for a few days, munching it, and they move on. But sometimes after a few weeks, they could be back in that paddock. But in winter and summer, it takes much longer for the paddocks to recover, the the plants to recover. This really is a it's a it's a a mind shift. I think rather than thinking that you are farming cattle, 
you are farming grass. And so if you look to the health of the grass, then Dad encouraged me that everything else will kind of take care of itself, the soil underneath, the animal health, the overall health of the landscape. You said you're farming grass, not cattle. This seems like the key insight here then. Yeah, and I think this really comes to a head in times of drought. Successful regenerative graziers they recognise that their their capital is in their pastures and that it's much easier to sell their animals because you can buy back other animals eventually. It's much easier to do that than keep animals when there is not enough grass and totally degrade your land and then have to spend years getting back to the point where you were. So once I recognised that, I I started thinking a little bit differently and and looking at the land a bit differently. Obviously, you make money from selling cattle, but you're not going to get much money if your pastures are in a state of overgrazed disrepair because you're pushing them too hard. So if you're a grass farmer, your power sources then are water and sunshine. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So again, my dad, the economist, he loved a free lunch. He's always talking about free lunches. Nature gives you a few free lunches. Sunlight in Australia is a big one. And again, it comes back to the bare ground. Sunlight hitting bare ground, it's not going to grow anything. But if you are using sunshine to hit a a paddock that's been well-rested with leafy perennial grasses that can turn this sunlight into energy for animals, then that's a free lunch. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. We were talking before about a more general shift that's taking place where you realise you're not so much a cattle farmer as you are a grass farmer. This means you have to huddle the cattle together quite tightly, is that right, and then keep it moving from pasture to pasture. In what ways does that replicate the way wild uh, ruminant animals, like wild cattle, wild animals like cattle, cattle would have moved around in nature before the arrival of humans? Well, ruminants around the world, their safety is in numbers. They herd together. And whether they're being preyed on by wolves or lions, they huddle in this way and they move through the landscape. They, they're moved by the predators that are circling them, but also in the search for fresh pasture. And this means that they're, they're never overgrazing because they're not spending so much time over one plant or one pasture. They're not going to hang around and be exactly. preyed upon. Right, so, so, yeah. so it's predators that keep them moving very often. Yeah, and also this bunch together effect means that the grass that they haven't eaten, maybe old grass, they, they trample down and this is acting as mulch. It's preventing bare ground and that'll compost down into the soil. And that's what we try and apply. We try and try and be the wolf moving them through pastures according to the how fast the grass is growing, but, but never allowing them to be in one paddock for too long. Your dad, like I say, was trained as a, an economist. Does this in some ways plug into his philosophy of farming? It's something I only realised writing this book. For a long time, I I thought there was this inherent contradiction between my dad's economic beliefs and his farming beliefs. He's very much an environmentalist, although he wouldn't probably admit that. And I've come to think that they're actually quite complementary because he he believes that nature, like the market, is uh, is all-powerful so we should step out of its way and let it do its thing. But he concedes that sometimes we trash nature to such a degree that you need to give it a leg up, whether that means through planting trees that have been lost through previous poor land management by fixing up creeks, by uh, rotationally grazing in the way that I've discussed so that there's better water retention. He, but then he believes that once you've done these things, it will largely take care of itself and you can, you can step, step away from it. Um, he says that that's a way of getting nature to work for you. 
So, Sam, how was it that you came to find a project of your own in the orchard on the farm? We have an orchard with about 70 trees that my dad and mum planted to be supposedly self-sufficient when they when they established Golion. I don't know how many kids they're planning on having because now it produces a lot of fruit. There's all, all kinds of fruit, apples, pears, peaches, plums. But there was one tree that has always been special. It's a big old fig tree, about 40 years old, the black genoa fig tree. The fruit it produces is absolutely incredible. And so I decided to plant it with black genoa figs. I knew they did well there, and I didn't want to tinker with the genetics of this giant big tree. So I took cuttings off the branches of this tree, and now I have an orchard with around 100 black genoa figs, which are identical genetically to the mother tree. How easy was it for you to sell these figs? It was pretty easy. I, I knew from chef friends in Canberra who had tasted the, the fruit from the original tree that there was a market there. They, they would lose, lose it when they tasted these things. And the way they spoke of these figs, I, I, I realised that there was, there was something there and I was onto a good thing with them. This is a bit of a bugbear of mine. You can travel around country, little country towns in France and in Spain and in Italy and, and elsewhere, anywhere around the Mediterranean, I suppose, and... It's the most beautiful food that's locally produced. Strange enough, in Australian country towns, all too often you go to a local cafe or a restaurant or something and you'll get something that's, that's been processed in a city and brought back out to the country again. What's going on there, do you think? I think it's complicated. I think Australia is probably the only society in human history where two supermarket giants dictate what just about everyone eats. So there's that and a lot of these food-producing areas, they take food to go to these supermarkets and then the seconds actually go back to the regions that produce the food. So in the capital cities, you'll find better quality produce than in the, the regions where they, were, where they were grown. I think there's this distinction between producing and consuming that a lot of farmers have. Uh, we were settled at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and, and right from the start, Australia was producing wool, not for ourselves, but for markets overseas. We've always been an export-oriented. And I think that's still prevalent today. And in, in my dad's case, even though he was really into growing high-quality organic produce, he didn't really care to eat it. And he wanted to have iceberg lettuces and tomatoes in his sandwich every day of the year. And I, I thought of this again recently when... It was all over the media that iceberg lettuces were $12 a head because of floods and labour shortages and inflation. But there was very little discussion as to why we why would want to eat it. these. Yeah. And there's yeah. a, a terrific book that I read recently called One Continuous Picnic by Michael Simmons. It came out in, in the early 80s and he argues that, that white Australia never developed uh, a peasant culture because it didn't need to. Right from the beginning of the colonies, swaggies were paid in tea from China, from sugar from the West Indies. They weren't plugged into what grew here or having to grow things themselves than settler colonial societies elsewhere in the world. And I think that's really true. Yeah, most of the world's great cuisines come out of some famine somewhere where, <laughs> where local peasants have been forced to experiment and try new things and find whatever's around and cook, cook with what they've got. And yeah, they it. need to. And, and, yeah. and occasionally working with my dad. And, and now it's something I feel strongly about. I'm, I, me and my partner are much more self-sufficient than my parents were. But when I was working with my dad and we have an old chook or something, I'd propose killing it and eating it. And he'd, he'd ridicule the idea. He'd say, why would you spend hours doing that when you can just drive into to town and get a chook from the supermarket. Get a bachelor's handbag, yeah, from Coles. Exactly, really <laughs> contradicted his whole farming philosophy, but, but they weren't connected for him, this idea of eating and producing. So after working there for several years as a farmhand for your dad, was there ever a conversation about you taking over the farm, given your dad was in his late 60s? I think the closest thing we had to a conversation, one morning we were fixing the fence on my new fig orchard and we were discussing this beautiful big hill that, that looms over the boundary of Golion. A few years ago, Dad had the opportunity to buy it and he, he didn't and he regretted it and we were discussing that and now it's, it's owned by a cashed up tree changer who's built a house on the top of it. And Dad mentioned in an offhand, quite snide way, oh, that, that bloke will probably buy you out one day. I thought that was interesting. It was it was an acknowledgement that what I was doing at the farm wasn't fleeting, that I was I was going to be there for a while. And, and that was the closest thing he said to 
anointing me as his successor. And when he said that to you, what did you think? Yeah, there were a few moments. Like, I still think I'm quite a bumbling beginner farmer. And, and early this year when I sold cattle for the first time for myself, um, some of my steers were heavily discounted because I'd only castrated one of their testicles. So I'm still a beginner. <laughs> but back then, I, I really doubted that I could do this. And I remember there were a few moments. There was a moment where mum and dad were away and I was looking after the farm and, and I lost a bull. Bulls often go missing for various reasons. They fight and they sulk or if they're a little bit raunchy, they'll go looking for action. And I spent ages and ages looking for this bull and I finally found it on a neighbor's place and I cut the fence and I mustered it back onto our place. And then I fixed the fence perfectly, just as dad had taught me. And I, I felt euphoric. I remember that, that moment feeling like, oh, maybe I can do this. Um, so there were moments like that that all added up. And, and then this little conversation where I, I realized that I, I was in this formal apprenticeship. And, and, and we, we discussed it properly at a family meeting with my sisters later on at my dad's 70th, where a kind of roadmap to formal succession was laid out. But before then, yeah, it was just these, these little moments that, that gradually made me feel like I could do this and that I wanted to do it. I, I really enjoyed the work. I, I loved working with Dad and I grew to really love Golion. Um, I even have come to defend the power lines that march across its landscape. I don't, <laughs> I don't like to say they blighted. I say they, they dot the landscape. One of the things you realise that your dad could do, that a lot of farmers can do, experienced farmers can do, is to be able to read the land. How did you learn to read the land yourself? Through walking the pastures with dad and him bending down and running his hands through various plants and talking to me about why those specific plants were there, especially weeds, they were quite instructive. Things like thistles or serrated tussocks. He taught me to think of them as as scars. They were, they were scabs on a scarred landscape. So a weed wasn't there just by accident. It was a sign of previous poor land management. It might have been by him, it might have been by someone else. But for whatever reason, perennial grasses that were naturally found there had died off. They'd been bare ground. And often the first thing to grow back is a weed, like a serrated tussock. And he would say that they're actually playing a role. They're the first thing that forms. They're the, the, the scab on the scar. And if you don't do further damage, if you take care not to overgraze that, that paddock and, and help biodiversity flourish, then these weeds should eventually disappear. They'll be outcompeted by other perennial species um, that have wanted to grow there because the landscape is more amenable. So a weed is not like a thistle, isn't so much a nuisance as it is a warning signal. A warning. It's telling you something. I remember Dad once telling me that weeds are, it's a, it's a superficial, it's a, it's a very arbitrary term. They're, a weed is just a plant that, that you don't want there for a particular reason. But that, can, that changes according to who you are and what you're doing. And, and in that sense, I, I do think weeds are, are valuable. And thistles, I've noticed since I've taken over the farm, I, I, it gives me great pleasure to see where they're eventually disappearing, where I knew that there were a lot of them. And I haven't sprayed them, I haven't cut them out. I've just focused on that part of a paddock and tried to improve the microclimate through my judicious grazing, through spreading of compost tea, spreading of compost, uh, and just let nature crowd out these weeds. Let the, let the, the scab uh, heal this scarred bit of land. For a long time, you were a single guy while you were helping out your dad to begin with, and you couldn't help but notice the different reactions on Tinder when you list your occupation as farmer, what are the kind of the ways that a farmer might present himself and, and how, that, how differently might that go over on an app like Tinder when you put down farmer? I think there's a reason why most of the farmers on uh, Farmer Wants a Wife are cattlemen. They're quite maligned. I think there's, a, there's an idea that if you're a cattle farmer, a grazier, you're a redneck, you're a reactionary, you're trashing, trashing the environment. Well, I just found through accident that if I listed fig farmer, I seemed to get quite a bit more interest. <laughs> well, more, more Mediterranean, cool, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a bit more of a, a free thinker. Um, and I still notice when I tell people that I'm a farmer, in, particularly in, in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, when I say I'm a cattle farmer, I, I like looking into their eyes and seeing, seeing their silent judgment of me for <laughs> supposedly trashing the, the ecosystem and the climate. But when it comes to grazing, you've learnt this phrase that says, it's not the cow, it's the how. What does that mean? 
Yeah. The thing about cattle grazing, cattle rearing, overwhelmingly it's terrible for the planet. I think 97% of American beef is factory farmed. It's fed on grains. In Brazil, a lot of the Amazon is being chopped down and burnt to produce pasture for cattle grazing, which is obviously terrible for the planet. But this TAFE course that I did, the teacher Brian kept stressing it's not the cow, it's the how. And what he means by that is it's the cows aren't inherently destructive. There's been a tradition of cattle herding, cattle farming for thousands and thousands of years. But farming them in this industrial way where you're not allowing the cows to do good things by promoting all these grasses to, to grow in a healthy grassland and sequester carbon if you're keeping them in concrete factories or feeding them grain, uh, which in- increases the amount of methane, then, then you're, you're trashing the planet. But it need not be that way. I guess the way I think of it now is that the climate crisis isn't caused by cattle. It's caused by the Industrial Revolution and its application to every facet of human life since then, including agriculture. So... Plant-based foods can be grown in an industrial way that's bad for the environment as well. And, and cattle farming can do more good than harm, I argue, if it's done the right way and in the right place. And that is vital. Um, if you're chopping down the Amazon and, and putting cattle there, you're not going to sequester as much carbon as if, if you let the forest. But rangelands, this, this dry, hilly, marginal ecosystem that covers so much of Australia and southern South America and southern Africa and parts of the United States and and Canada. It's not suitable for growing crops. So if you want to grow food on it, animals are really an ingenious way of of recycling the the grass that grows there and and turning into manure and cycling these minerals through the soil um, that you otherwise couldn't. And similarly, a lot of people since I've started farming cattle, they point out that cattle use so much water to grow steak. Well, the only water we use on our farm falls from the sky. If we didn't have cattle there, it wouldn't change the amount of water we're using. So I think, I think cattle are quite maligned in that way, and it's understandable why, because overwhelmingly in the industrial world, uh, cattle farming is destructive. But, but what regenerative farmers are trying to point out that, yes, cattle will produce methane, which can be more heating than carbon, but you can also sequester a lot of carbon through spreading grass, through encouraging these healthy grasslands by having cattle. And and if you just didn't have any animals on a rangeland, uh, you'd still need something to cycle these grasses, how they've evolved. So if you didn't have anything eating them, they'll, they'll just turn grey and oxidise and then the carbon will be lost into the atmosphere. If you drive along rural Australia and look at the side of the road where no animals are able to graze, you'll see these, these grasses that look grey and it's because the, the carbon isn't being cycled and put back into the soil and, and being lost to the atmosphere. I mentioned tinder there. Um, you have met someone, you've fallen in love, you've got a, a child now. When you met her and, and fell in love, did she imagine a life on the land for herself? No, not at all. She's very much a, a city girl, uh, a former RN broadcaster, actually. Really? Uh, yeah. Right. But we we started dating, we chatted on Twitter, not Tinder, about um, about movies. So nothing to do with farming. Did you turn Tinder... From a forum of rage into a forum of love. Is this what you're telling me, Twitter, Sam? Yeah, yeah. Twitter. I think, Twitter. I think right. a lot of a lot of DMs go on that people won't know about. <laughs> nice Twitter. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do remember uh, one of our first meetings in Sydney. Uh, we were in a bar in, in Redfern and suddenly this giant rat squeezed out of the downpipe and trotted away towards Surrey Hills and and Lauren, my now partner, said um, City, cities are disgusting places or something like that and I thought, oh, maybe maybe this could work. And then one of our first dates at, at the farm uh, I, I was showing her the creek and the creek is really the, the jewel in the regenerative crown at the farm. My my parents have spent decades restoring its its function and now it's it's it works beautifully. It's a it's a real oasis, and I wanted to show Lauren this this part of the farm. And and when we we got there, I found a hole in the fence, and the neighbours' sheep were all over the creek, and uh, one of them was so fat it couldn't get back through the hole. And I made Lauren help me carry it um, to the to the fence, so she passed that test as well. But but no, I mean I think 
I think it is hard for a lot of non-farmers to move to farms, and I've I've never expected Lauren to become a farmer or a farmer's wife. I'm I'm happy being the farmer. We 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 share uh, the farm through food, I guess. She's a fantastic cook, and I'm really trying to be as self-sufficient as possible. So it's a nice thing to to bring in all kinds of fruit and veggies and meats, and and then. She turns them into delicious meals. That's our little trade-off, and yeah, and I think I think living on the farm too has enabled her to further her career as a writer. Suddenly, the the stresses of living in a city and hustling aren't aren't there. There's a place on your farm that was known throughout your childhood as Bald Hill, and now it has a different name. Tell me the story of how it came to have its new name. We always thought Bald Hill was was a bit peculiar. It's out near the Murrumbateman Creek, and it's it's. As its name suggests, it's all by itself. It's not covered with any trees. It just kind of gradually rises to a point. And the soil there is, is a different type and colour to the rest of the farm. It's, it's kind of like turmeric. It's a yellow-orangey colour. And in 2016, my friend Dave Johnston, who's an Indigenous archaeologist based here in Canberra, he wanted to come out to the farm just to look around, to see what if he could find any Indigenous artefacts there. And, and I thought this was a great opportunity. I'd, I, since I'd started working on the farm and, and learning to read the landscape, I had often thought about, you know, how, how did earlier humans living here use this land? How did they interact with it? And in 2016, we were in the midst of a, a mini drought, not the terrible drought that would follow, just an early smaller one. And, and I, I worked out that archaeologists love droughts because they can see everything suddenly. There's no grass in the way. So I spent a few really enjoyable weeks with Dave just walking around Golion and, and um, he showed me all kinds of things. He, he found a lot of little waste flakes, these kind of left behind bits and pieces from where stone tools had been made. And then one day on Bald Hill, we were walking on its slope and Dave saw something on the ground. And he's, he's quite excitable and he, he swore when he picked up this thing and he said, Vinny, it's a thumbnail scraper. I didn't know what a thumbnail scraper was, but it, it, it's since been proved by Dave and other archaeologists looking at it in labs with microscopes and things. It's proven to be a, a stone tool that was used to gouge ochre out of this hillside. That's why it has this beautiful turmeric colour. Uh, there's ochre in the rocks there. Ochre for ceremonial purposes? Yeah. So Ngunnawal and Ngambri people used to use ochre in birthing ceremonies, weddings, funerals, coming of age. It was really a, an important part uh, of these ceremonies, putting ochre on, on the skin. And suddenly, and I still feel this when I'm out there, I, I can kind of picture families moving through the landscape and, and mining this ochre and using it. It was, it was really, it, it's undoubtedly the highlight of my farming career so far. It was, it was wonderful. And that set in chain and that set into motion a chain of events which, which led to the site being renamed, the Nunawal name Derawadara, which means yellow ground. And it is now protected by the New South Wales government as an Aboriginal place with capital letters, Aboriginal place. It means that uh, we can still graze its slopes. Our management practices haven't changed, but no one can build a house on it. Its ongoing importance to Aboriginal people is enshrined in New South Wales heritage law. And and I, I didn't think this was a big big deal at the time. I just assumed that this happened all, all the time all over Australia. But Dave pointed out that there are only a dozen or so sites on private properties that had been protected as Aboriginal places. And it really drummed home how white farmers, not only have they seen themselves as trying to tame an unruly continent, but they they haven't wanted to deal with the fact that they have displaced an earlier an earlier people living on what they now think of as their land. And I was gobsmacked that there were only... 11 or 12 Aboriginal places on private property. And we're hoping that this, this process we've gone through will, will lead to many more farmers to, to undergo the same, the same journey. Um, for those years between 2016 and 2018, Dave brought out uh, Ngunnawal and Nambri elders to the, the site and it was just so lovely talking to them about um, being able to come onto country that they had been barred from a lot of the time. Um, one, one guy 
a, a late elder. I'm getting emotional talking about him because he 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 mentioned that the last time he'd been invited onto a, he'd been on a farm. Sorry, it was when he was a kid and he was chased off it by a, a farmer on horseback uh, who didn't want him there hunting rabbits. Um, so just the act of of being allowed onto a white person's farm for him was a big deal that I didn't expect, and it was yeah, it was it was amazing. And that that same elder, um, Dave. I remember one day Dave asked him permission to take uh, an artifact off what is now Deruadara for further investigation. And for a split second, I felt weird that Dave wasn't asking me permission. And then I felt deeply ashamed that I'd even thought that. Um, so it, it's, it, it now holds this, this special status for my family and the farm. For us... As settler Australians, it doesn't hold this cultural significance. It's it's a paddock, which is now called Derodara. Uh, we manage its slopes like we manage the other 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 paddocks with the cattle. But for the Nambri Nunwal communities who have taken a lot of school kids there, it has it has profound spiritual and cultural significance. So it's really lovely that it has these dual purposes. And everyone has has won out of it, I think. So now you're the farmer. Your mum and dad have retired to the south coast of New South Wales and you're living there with your partner, Lauren, and you've got a baby daughter. How lovely. What are you looking forward to doing with your baby daughter on the farm over the years? One thing I didn't expect, I guess because gender roles were so sharply divided when my parents were here, I actually think farming and fatherhood are extremely complementary. So at the moment, my cattle are calving. I have about 45 calves so far. And it means that, that I try and check the herd twice a day in case I need to play, play midwife. And I take our baby daughter, Orlando, with me on those trips and we walk around and, and she hears all the mooing and the birds and the trees and the wind and, and she loves that white noise and, and has a little sleep. And when she was born in the midst of fig season, when she was a tiny baby early this autumn, uh, I picked a lot of fruit with her in the pram beside me. Um, we've built a fence together. We've, we've discovered a wedge-tailed eagle nest. I think I, I, I want to teach her, no matter what she wants to do in life, I want to teach her this, this great responsibility and, and privilege that I have in, in managing Goleon just for a short space of time. And, and I hope she realizes that that it is a great honour. Every little decision we make there will, will impact the, the wider landscape and, and I don't take that lightly and I hope, hope she doesn't either. This, this generation going from my dad um, teaching me about farming, it's, it's continuing on. It's been lovely to speak with you, Sam, and thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. Sam Vincent's book is called My Father and Other Animals. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. It's a heist of grand proportions and a story straight out of a Hollywood blockbuster. Millions of dollars of diamonds smuggled out of the remote Kimberley in Western Australia, then around the world. But the diamonds weren't lost to the 80s when this heist happened. The stolen gems are back in circulation. On Pink Diamond Heist. How did no one notice diamonds were being smuggled out of the world's most secure mine? Who were the culprits behind this multi-million dollar heist? And where are the stolen diamonds now? Find out right now on Pink Diamond Heist on the ABC Listen app.